Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour of science now. We have three guests waiting out there in the green room, but we're going to give you some news first. And in the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to be back. Yeah, good to be back. Where were you? I've been, I've been oh. all over. I was in Canberra last week meeting with some, science, some scientists and some politicians. Oh, yeah. Trying to get those two very important fields to talk to each other with varying levels of success yeah. and then I was down in Hobart speaking to some scientists and getting into some nature so yeah. it's lovely but Very good cool. to be back here. Yep and that rattling uh, you heard just a moment ago was Dr. Laura grabbing her microphone. I'm a mic grabber but I'm you appropriately are. seated. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> Dr. Ray good morning. Morning Dr. Shane. Yep. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm your, good. Your, your dulcet t- sound, <clears throat> tone sounded a little more gravelly this morning. Yeah. Did, were, you, were you out yodeling last night again? No, I wasn't, but I was uh, looking at some new medicines um, that I was trying for something. Some was, was you were trying medicines year, on a 12-year medicines? 12-year <laughs> <year laughs> No, no, it's, um, some, it's uh, something Bailey's. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> oh, <no. clears throat> and white wine. Anyway. It is what it is, folks. Uh, anyway, uh, let's get into some science news. Dr. Linden, what do you got? I have got a little bit of an update on an observatory oh. that's being built in Australia. No, don't get too excited, okay. Dr. Shane. It is not a space observatory. It is an acoustic observatory. I was so hoping for a snail observatory, oh, i got to well, be honest. You know, maybe. That, that would have been cool. Next but, time. All right, sorry. You, that's, you hold on to that idea. Yeah, okay. Maybe you can bring it in, Dr. A. <laughs> this is an observatory. It's been, it's a project that's been running for a couple of years, put together by five universities in Queensland and New South Wales. I think it started, they sort of did a pilot in 2017, but now the data has started to come up, uh, come in. What we've got is about, a hundred sites around Australia for all these different places, all these different ecosystems and habitats around the country, right? Quite remote places. Yeah. And they've got about 400 different uh, sensors that are recording all the sounds of these places 24-7. They're going to do it for five years. So you're going to end up with about 2,000 years or two petabytes of data. I brought in a file, but you're shaking your head at yeah, me. Yeah, it seems to have uh, vanished, but if you hand me the oh, memory stick, I no. might be able to play it for you. The if you've still got stick. it uh, laying no, around there somewhere, it. you've lost it. I've lost it. Maybe oh. we can play it later yeah, we in can the play show. It later. I'm sorry about that. I'm not even going to try and make uh, <laughs> make the noises, but I did bring in a little sound because now the data are starting to come in. You don't need us to play it. You can just find it because everybody can use these observations, mm. right? And it's great because you can hear the sounds of the country and that's really good, but it's valuable to have these sensors in all these remote places because lots of times the really interesting ecological stuff that happens happens when those areas are inaccessible. So if you have a big rain come through the desert, for example, you can't get there. But if you've got these remote sensors for this big observatory, then they can capture when the birds come back, when the frogs mm. come out, all these kinds of things. And so this, I don't know, I was just touched by the idea of this acoustic observatory and the fact that anybody, artists, scientists, researchers, members of the public, anybody can just listen to these files, download them and kind of find find their animals, find their species, all these kinds of things. And where can we go? Because this does sound beautiful. Is this being LinkedIn? 
Yes, to our Twitter. Acoustic, Acoustic Observatory and follow our Twitter. I think Liv's got it, got it going. Uh, this is just really cool. It's exciting. I mean, it, didn't the Eureka Pro- one of the Eureka Prizes go for the frog identifying app this well, year? Well, this is the thing, yeah. And, and, and so just this is like a whole next level to that type of science and even citizen science accessibility. Exactly. You, you could go to remote locations and yeah. play the frog app. Exactly. See, so oh. there's the there's the Shazam for frogs that yeah. won the Eureka Prize. There's a Shazam for birds. And this is being touted as sort of a Google Maps for sound where you can yeah. zoom into a place and a time and sort of see what's been or hear what's been going on. And you can then, I think some of the researchers at QUT are hoping to create a bit of a, audio DNA file of the different kinds of habitats and environments that exist across the the country to say this is what our rainforest, this rainforest sounds like, this is what this rainforest sounds like to kind of map those changes, which I don't know. I read a lot of bad science news this week and I thought I might bring in some good news instead. How how resilient are these detectors to environmental changes? Because with things like the bushfires and that, like you said, when animals and birds return to an area, that would be super interesting to see how the soundscape changes after a bushfire, you know, in the weeks following, the week before, you know, all that stuff. Are Are they resilient to that? Well, they put two, they put four in each place and they put two in a kind of close to the creek, a wet habitat and two further away in a dry habitat. Presumably that's in case there is some kind of failure. And I assume that they're going with audio files because they're smaller and because those sensors will be more resilient than Mm. something like if you were going for video, if you were trying to record stuff. So they also, because these places are so remote, they can't just Bluetooth or use Wi-Fi yeah. to get the information yeah. back. So the researchers are going out at least once a year to check on them. So if they do have a point of failure, then they can right. be corrected. But they seem quite simple. There's sort of yeah. step-by-step instructions of how to set them up on the website. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Hmm. Sounds really cool. Sounds really cool. Like yep. I've <coughs> been working nice on that fun. for about three minutes. <laughs> Dr. Laura, what do you got? That was really beautiful news, Lyndon. Um, so I chose some news that I just couldn't get my head around how they would do it. So that's why I really wanted to read more about it. Um, researchers have measured the wild blue whale's heartbeat for the first time. And so when you think about how they would do that, you know, the blue whale is the largest mammal on the planet. It's a, a couple of yeah. facts about the blue whale. It's elephant. Uh, sorry, its tongue is the size of the elephant. That is like my favorite fact. <laughs> yeah, I just like to cool. think about it. You know, yeah, tongue yeah. is the size of an elephant. Its heart is absolutely huge. It's like five foot. So pretty much my size um, gets up to 110 foot. Yeah, mm. well, we're just we're just measuring ourselves to see how we would go against the heart of a blue whale. So how are you going to measure its heartbeat and how are you going to place a monitor on a heart? And there are some really great quotes from the first author of this study. And it came out of Stanford saying they never thought it would work because there's such difficulty because whales, you've also got to get a heart monitor that would go through all those inches of blubber as well. Mm. Um, so they had a... Um, they had a heart monitor. It was attached to four su- suction cups, and they just sort of tried to attach it with difficulty. They used a 20-foot pole, and they just hoped it would attach to a bit of skin where it would get through the blubber. They can't go for the belly because whales don't actually turn over on their belly in the wild, um, and they had to also hope that it would actually stay on. But they got it on to a 15-year-old male in, on the, off the California coast, and they monitored the heartbeat for eight and a half hours before the heart sensor then fell off and then floated to the surface, and then they could collect the data. Hmm. 
And so what they found is that um, so whales are always like surfacing and diving because of course it's about their mammals they need to um, breathe oxygen and then when they dive they sort of balloon out their mouths taking loads of water and they eat krill which is what they um, sustain themselves on and their hearts um, perhaps not surprisingly are completely the extreme when they're diving they get to two heartbeats per minute. Think about that. I mean, this is a huge mammal and oxygen's got to get around the size of that thing and the heart is going down to two beats per minute. And that is that when it's going fast or when no, it's going slow? No, that's when it sits at deepest so point in the ocean. So that's nice and slow, just yeah. chill them out. And then and when it gets up to the surface to take in its oxygen, yep. it gets up to 37 beats per minute. Whoa. So it goes from 2 to 37. So yeah. that's absolute extreme. So if you think about humans, um, we range from, you know, our resting heartbeat is 60 50, to yep. 100. At our maximum pace, that would be 200. That would yep. be sort Four of a marathon yep. runner. Um, so, yeah, so 2 to 37, absolutely extreme. And the researchers were sort of hypothesizing that, you know, this is the absolute capacity that a heart could, you know, range from. And this might be why the whales could not get any bigger or huger than they are. So this is an absolute extreme of a mammal. Mm. So why should we care apart from just understanding more basic whale, whale biology? They hope by understanding the whales it might aid in their conservation because, of course, and blue whales are incredibly endangered now and also um, aid the understanding of biologi- uh, biological limits and size. Yeah. So one of the questions I have there, when you talk about the whale going deep and having a heartbeat of like two beats per minute, is that essentially hibernation? I mean, that's it, yeah, it's, it's not so functional low. at that point, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's not functional in a way that allows it to, to expend energy. So it's kind of almost like a way anim- certain animals hibernate. It's it's almost like it's hibernating at that depth. Is that what period. the blue whale does at well, depth? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, well, no, it's not. But but it's in a, in the biological sense. Mm. That's kind of what a heartbeat yeah, like that does. Yeah, whales have adapted this special aortic valve for the heart, mm. so it's sort of like a balloon which allows the blood flow to go really slow, slowly round. So uh, that's what's ha- that's how the blood flow is allowed, allowed to get around the whale's body when it is going so 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 slow, yeah. as you say, almost in a. So um, we've seen the structure of the blue whale's heart, but we've never understood. From that sort of how fast it beats. How fast it beats. Yeah, no. That is fascinating. It's wild stuff. It's wild stuff. But can I also point out that I think it's only when you study something as cool as a blue whale that you can get away with N equals 1 in PNAS. This was published in PNAS by the team at Stanford. (laughs) N equals 1 whale. N equals 1 whale. Yeah. So So that could have just been a super fit blue whale, you think? (laughs) Yeah, there could be one that can go down to like... Five beats per minute, yeah. but that's it. This one, this one's like one of those, that, you know, those people, who, you know, who dive, they free dive. Could be, you know, this could be yeah. an obscure whale. But now, what they want to do is they want to um, get to a point where they can keep those suction cups onto a whale for longer and track the whale over points of time and in different conditions as well. Yeah, it's wild stuff. I'm still stuck on the elephant tongue. I know, and it's buses. amazing. I think about it all the Elephant time. Tongue. And how many? It's like twenty buses is a blue whale, or two of the biggest dinosaurs. Yeah. Blue whales and then the are the heart is a Small car. Ah, oh, so cool. <sighs> Blows my stuff. mind. Amazing stuff. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Uh, Dr. Shane, um, I have a story about how E. coli can now eat carbon dioxide. Nice. Nice. Right. So for those of you that, that don't know, E. coli is a fang, fantastic single-cell bacteria. We actually use it already to we've, – we've, we've engineered E. coli to make useful chemicals like insulin, which is made through a fermentation process with E. coli, or uh, human growth hormone. So we've genetically manipulated E. coli to do things for, for, for humankind already. But this is a new one where we're actually getting E. coli to eat carbon dioxide. Now, if we think about it, there are plenty of single-cell 
wild organisms and larger organisms that eat carbon dioxide and turn it into useful chemicals. They're called plants mm. and cyanobacteria. Where That's why you're the scientist, Dr. Ray. I know. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Engineer, thank you. Um, sorry. But there's two parts to a plant. So they use photosynthesis is actually how they get the fuel or the energy to convert carbon dioxide. So they eat carbon dioxide, but they use photosynthesis to give them the energy to convert that to, to carbon, useful carbon molecules. The catch is it's, it's actually difficult to manipulate plants or single cell back cyanobacteria to do the things we'd like to do. So there's much more advantage of working with something with E. coli. And so what they've done is, um, this is a group from the Weizmann's Institute of Science in Israel, where they spent the last 10 years trying to change the E. coli diet. They've been trying to get it to eat CO2. Normally, E. coli eats glucose or sugars, which is what most single-cell bacteria eat. Um, and <clears throat> so what they actually did was a, a little surprising. They First, they genetically gave, gave it a couple genes that you find in plants to actually convert carbon dioxide to useful molecules, but they didn't give it the ability to do photosynthesis. Um, and, and so they gave it a little bit of genetic engineering, and then they did a forced evolution study where they um, put CO, they put E. coli in a CO2-rich environment for two or after about 200 days and a number of different E. coli generations. They started to go, well, this is the only thing to eat. I guess we'll eat that. Uh, and after about 300 days, it turned out the E. coli that didn't eat CO2 just didn't do that well. And the ones that actually did started converting carbon dioxide to their building blocks in their cells. Uh, and so that sounds really exciting because this is a chance to possibly in the long run make food or, or, or actually make chemicals from a source, a, a cheap source of carbon, uh, as well as there is an argument about sequestering CO2 that they haven't solved yet. Now, if we look at this was in, in the journal Science, or it was actually reported in Cell, but I read about it in Science. In that same article, there was yet another study about converting carbon dioxide to methanol through a catalyst. And so the hot topic in a lot of areas of research is trying to take carbon dioxide, which is normally the end product of us using carbon materials. And so we get energy and we end up make out of a molecule and end up making carbon dioxide. Now we're trying to go against thermodynamics and actually take carbon dioxide and make it into useful molecules. And chemically, that's really hard. We're still inventing catalysts to, to try to control that chemical reaction. So this is an idea where we could take advantage of biology to do that as well. Mm. Uh, so it's still a couple of years from application. And to power the E. coli, since it doesn't use photosynthesis, they, they actually engineered it to eat a chemical called formate, which is a very simple single-cell carbon chemical. But in the end, it means the E. coli still produces CO2. All right. So it, it, yeah. it is only eating CO2. It's not eating sugar, but the act of the E. coli living still produces some CO2. Is there an – does it produce more than it eats? Yeah. Yeah, so right now how they communicated uh -oh. that in their diagram was they're like, see how the CO2 arrow going out is thicker than the CO2 arrow mm. going in? They still haven't quite got that, oh, that mass balance there. A lot of the titles were like E. coli is going to, you know, be at the front of the, you know, against climate change because it eats CO2, so well, not uh, quite. In, in fairness, they actually went through the effort of instead of just buying the formate, generated it from uh, electrolysis. So that's kind of like water splitting. So one could say that the formate part could be powered by something other than fossil fuels. But, uh, yeah, there's still a bit of the way off from the carbon sequestration part. But thermodynamically, being able to make useful molecules from carbon dioxide is a huge energy cost. So if they can actually optimize E. coli to do that, they'll still be doing better off than other processes to produce the same chemicals. Yeah. Best that we try a lot of things. That's what I think. 
Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. In the studio with us now is Kara Simpson. She is from the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the studio of Triple R. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Look, it's great to have you on because uh, now you're in the middle of your PhD. That's right. Um, and you're working on something that I've been talking about, uh, having more on the show about this topic for a while, this whole issue of the microbiome. And, yeah. and, and this has exploded over the last decade. And I don't mean that in the disgusting sense. I mean, it's just, you know, like <laughs> I was making so, that. <laughs> so much interest in this. Um, tell us first, uh, just a quick rundown on what do we mean when we say the microbiome? Because w- you hear a lot of versions of this, but yeah. you know, what, what's your version? Yeah, my version. So I guess the community of microorganisms inhabiting a particular environment. So at the moment, a lot of research is in the gut, but we have to specify that we're talking about the gut microbiome. Okay. And a lot of research is focusing on bacteria in particular for various reasons, but there's lots of other microorganisms of interest. So we're talking about viruses, fungi. So uh, it's actually any microorganism in an area, and then we have to specify where in the body that is. Right. When, when you talk about the, the gut, the part that always fascinates me is I've always, you know, before, you know, we've been talking about this for a while on the show, but before that, I always thought this is this incredibly hostile, acidic mm. environment yep. that breaks down our food. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, the people are talking about all this bacteria and other stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, how, how does that work? Yeah, so it really depends on the area of the gut we're talking about. Uh, and so certain areas may uh, be amenable to microbes that can deal with high pH, acidity. Okay. Uh, so it really depends. So as we go down the gastrointestinal tract, there'll be different microbes that can actually endure the really, as you say, hostile conditions. So mm. it really depends where we are. But, you know, there's billions of different species that can actually uh, really uh, use lots of metabolic products and mm. will produce metabolic pro- products and kind of make the most of those, com- you know, hostile conditions. Yeah. Okay. So my understanding, I mean, five years ago, we didn't know any, or well, maybe not, but this, this idea of the gut microbiome has become more and more popular and interesting in all fields of science recently right. from all types of health, not just whether you have uh, eating kind of allergies, all sorts of different things. So what component of the gut microbiome does your research relate to? Sure. So I think what really drove us in um, psychological sciences and psychiatric research is that we're dealing with conditions at the moment who uh, treatment approaches haven't developed for quite a while. I guess we're stagnant in terms of which, whether that's a cognitive behavioral therapy or a medication. Uh, there haven't been a lot of progress for a while. And so we thought, well, uh, we, we've got this growing body of literature that's showing that we have changes in the, the microbiome, uh, in response to stress and other conditions that are actually implicated in mental health. And for that reason, we thought, well, this is a, I guess a community that we can actually access via the gastrointestinal tract. It's relatively non-invasive. So it provided a really interesting possible point of intervention in conditions whose, uh, I guess, treatment and diagnosis has been stagnant for a while. So uh, we also, my research is really driven by, we've seen uh, high rates of co-occurrence with gastrointestinal syndromes and mental health disorders. So that really got us interested in, are there any shared microbial correlates? Mm. Uh, we see a development 
developing literature in gastrointestinal syndromes and the microbiome. So if they're highly co-occurring in mental health disorders, can that drive kind of a growing literature? So, so th- this is one of the, the questions I have around this. There's clearly a connection but do you know or do we have any feel for which way the drive is occurring? So yeah. is it mental health conditions causing yeah. issues with the microbiome or is it the microbiome potentially causing issues with mental health? Sure. So very much a growing body of literature. We know that the gut-brain axis, which facilitates the communication between the gut and the brain, is bidirectional. It's very multifactorial. So we have communication via, for example, the enteric nerve in the gut is communicating to the central nervous system. Mm. We have... Uh, immune-mediated communication. We have uh, metabolic products from bacteria, which include uh, precursors to neurotransmitters, and and they can actually translocate throughout the body and uh, possibly um, actually across the blood-brain barrier. So at the moment, we know this communication is incredibly bidirectional. There's some literature suggesting inflammation can precede mental health disorders, but we do know that when stress is induced, particularly in preclinical models, then that can actually have an effect on gastrointestinal motility and the microbiome. So at the moment, we're not talking any clear directional research. Uh, so we've got a long way to go, but we know this is bidirectional and can become a cyclic uh, type relationship. So can I ask when we think about um, the gut microbiome and say depression, um, are there any links between uh, microbes and you know molecules we know are involved, such as dopamine? And also, when we think about you know the microbiome being changed, is it been shown that it's changed between people with depression and not depression? And does it change if you're on antidepressants? Yeah. So this is actually one of the key points of of my research is because the existing body of literature has found that there is a, a differential, a significantly different abundance of particular microbes in depression compared to control groups but the literature has kind of failed to control for antidepressants which we know Mm. there was a really fascinating study in Nature Communications not too long ago which found really high correlations between whether you're on a SSRI a very common type of antidepressant anxiolytic and the actual microbes present so literature has failed to consider medication so when we make conclusions about for example this is a pathophysiologic of depression, but we're failing to control for a medication that's highly uh, prescribed in this group, which the majority of literature has failed to do, then we do kind of question whether it's just driven by changes due to the medication. Uh, In terms of your question about dopamine, so the literature... We're still developing whether the neurotransmitters in the gut can actually have a direct effect on the brain, but we do know that uh, neurotransmitters affect the vagus nerve, and that's you know that main nerve that connects the enteric nervous system and the central nervous system. Uh, but at the moment, the literature is really looking at how uh, the microbes present may be producing uh, metabolic products that can translocate throughout the body and in turn have an effect uh, on the brain. So, for example, short-chain fat. So, so one of the things I find really curious about this, depending on how this come, what comes out of this, is it may completely change the way we interact with patients. So, say for example, a patient goes to their local general practitioner uh, with, you know, a, a heavy chest infection. And that practitioner notices on their record that they are also taking antidepressants. Then absolutely whacking the crap out of the microbiome with antibiotics presumably would be something we should be thinking about. That's right. In more detail before we just hand those out to that patient. Is this, is this yeah. where this is heading? I think so. Mm. And I think even before that step, uh, thinking about what the, um, 
the antidepressants they may have been taking may have had on the gut microbiome, how mm. that in turn may have affected immunity right. uh, and may have, you know, I'm not talking um, this being deterministic, but if we have an uh, altered microbial <laughs> community that's not actually lending the immune system any favours, uh, that has been connected with, um, uh, I guess, a risk of then developing infections, mm. for example. So I think as we start to understand how medications are interacting with the microbiome uh, that has, as you say, knock-on effects for allied health, for medical lot. practitioners, yeah. for everyone. Yeah. And Cara, it would be amiss if I didn't mention that I read recently that they were doing a large um, trial of faecal transplants <laughs> for yep. depression. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always conscious of... Um, of having strong stances on uh, therapeutics and approaches. But at the moment, fecal transplant, uh, in order for us to make, I guess, strong conclusions about um, uh, the possibility of transferring stool from uh, someone without depression, for example, to mm. some to try to uh, transfer something that, you know, they're assumably saying that the other person might be lacking, uh, that is... That relies on us having a strong understanding of the community itself uh, and understanding how that interacts with the recipient's own host genetics, with the community that they're already harboring, uh, with their own immune system. And so we're at a point where there's so much basic research that needs to develop uh, in order for us to actually understand yeah. all of the many, many risks that or risks and um, possible benefits, hopefully, but there's so much more we need to understand in order to be recommending yeah. this. Who is not the answer yet? Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> They're already doing the trial in the US. I think give it okay. a go, see what it says. And we'll Did you want to mention your website, lauraprimepoo.com, <laughs> that you, you know, you... It, it works for cancer therapy. <laughs> I, I think it's a really promising approach. We just need to mm. understand more of this, how the stool interacts at an individual differences yeah. level. And, and once we understand that, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe Yeah, <laughs> I think well, she'll be selling the poo. Uh, Cara, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us about this. It's a, re it's a really interesting area. And I suspect it's one that, you know, like, like, immunotherapy and cancer and some of the others that we've talked about recently will just explode over the next 10 yeah. years because we know so little relative to what's there at the moment. So thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks so much for having me. Melbourne's own Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. In the studio with us now is Narelle Keating. She's a PhD student in the Nicholson Laboratory in the Inflammation Division of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, otherwise known as WeHi. Welcome, Narelle. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in. Uh, now, just FYI, Laura knows a little bit about the immune system, apparently. Not much. <laughs> a little bit. Um, you work on something called interferon. Tell us, what is interferon? Interferon is... Basically, it's a family of molecules, so there's multiple mm -hmm. interferons, uh, and their job is to regulate the immune response. Okay. So it was first named interferon because of its ability to interfere with viral replication. And so it plays a huge role in uh, our viral defenses and also bacterial defenses against all different kinds of pathogens. And basically, its job is to um, not only in interfere with viral replication, but to activate other immune cells like natural killer cells and our adaptive immune responses um, to tell them to 
yet be activated to grow, to proliferate, to go to the site of infection. Uh, it's really cool. It does a lot of things mm. in it. How, yeah. So how complicated is this sort of, or these, these molecules? Because it sounds like on one side you're saying it's you know, interfering, dealing mm. with viruses directly. On the other side, it's telling other parts of our immune system, hey, get in there, you know, your turn. Um, I mean, this must be a very, very complex chemical. It's extremely complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so easy as a basic researcher to think about it as a linear pathway where the signal interferon is is telling other cells to do its job, but actually... If you think about the crosstalk between how many immune cells would actually be responding in our body, it would tell this immune cell to turn on, this immune cell to turn off, this one to interact with another immune cell. There's so many different pathways going on that it makes it extremely complex but also really exciting to to research all right look out and if you're teaching immunology it's embarrassing because you're like and it's interferon again it comes up in every Uh, aspect pretty much right and and where do i find this in my body like what what produces it or is it just everywhere uh there are cells that specifically produce interferon there are different classes of interferon that is produced by different cells so for example um type 1 interferons are usually i think produced by um, oh goodness, Laura, help me out here. What are they produced by? <laughs> Type one interferons yeah. by a lot of different immune cells. Yeah, so they they're our first line, and then they produce other interferons that then um, interact with the natural killer cells, and they produce more interferons and other molecules. And it, it's, a, it's the a, answer's always interferon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I have a question from not an immunologist. I don't understand. I mean, it's probably basic, but you're saying that the immune, different parts of our immune system would be being told to turn on or turn off. Why would our immune system want to be turned off? Isn't, isn't that like our line of defense? Don't we want it to always be on? Yeah, that's a really great question. And probably the, the pinnacle of my um, research is looking at how the immune system is turned off. So basically, if you think about um, a healthy person, you don't really want their immune response to be turned on because that's when you get things like auto-inflammation and um, uh, things like rheumatoid arthritis is a prime mm. example. So that's mm. like an overactive immune response. Oh, yes, an okay. overactive and unwanted immune response, mm. essentially. So a response to nothing. A response to nothing, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, and then when you get infected, that's when you want your immune system to be on and at its best and working really hard, but eventually that that pathogen or that virus will be cleared and then you want it to come off again and mm. you want it mm. to to be stable and healthy and your very your body is very good at making sure it's expending as little amount of energy as possible and so if it doesn't need to be on it won't be on yeah and, and what happens like during pregnancy for example like because that's where the immune system has a very very unique and unusual scenario to deal with so what what's going on there i'm not too sure you know, like, Presumably, like, you have cells that aren't necessarily completely yours. You've got a parasite, but you, got you, a parasite, you want but you to keep it there. But you don't want your immune system mm. to attack it. You know, right. So there's some, weird, there's some weird... So it must be a similar scenario where it's being turned off or partially turned off. It's just very tightly regulated at all times. So whilst I say it's turned off, there's still this balance between activating and inhibitory signals. Mm. So it's not completely... Off, but it's it's about the regulation of it and keeping it happy. And can we can we hyper sort of stimulate the immune system through this interferon to, to do other stuff? Like I mean, so I know with the immunotherapy and cancer sort of scenario, presumably you want to say, hey, you've been tricked into not doing anything here. How do we 
can, can we use that particular pathway to say, hey, you know, get going. You've got a really, you've got a big job to do here and currently you're not doing it at all. Yeah, 100%. Um, a big part of immunotherapy, well, actually that's pretty much the definition of immunotherapy is how can we make our immune system more powerful and better at fighting these immune cells, uh, sorry, tumor cells. And basically, um, not only do we want to activate the pathway itself by maybe introducing interferon, but we want to figure out what the downstream molecular components are within the interferon pathway and say, how can we turn the ones that switch interferon off, off? Mm. to keep it on. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, of course, I mean, the therapies are like incredibly powerful tools, but fraught with difficulties because a lot of patients with immunotherapies designed to say cure their own, cure cancer, it, they start attacking their own tissues because yeah. of course then you're, you know, you, you're switching on the immune system incredibly <coughs> powerful, but then it starts attacking our own tissues. And so then you can have say, you know, liver disease and so forth as your immune system is turning on yourself. Mm. So as I understand it, Narelle, your research is looking at this basic kind of interactions dance between the uh, interferons and why they're turning off and on from our immune system. But are you sort of turning that research a bit to a particular application? Is there a particular disease or nasty thing that our body doesn't know how to deal with that you are focusing on? That's a really interesting question and one that I think will evolve through the course of my PhD. I think it, it very heavily depends on what we find. So I'm looking at um, the components, the molecular components that are absolutely required for interferon to work at its best and also the components that switch it off. So depending on the results, I guess, will then um, affect what clinical applications that will then have. I think Lyndon wants to know your favourite, you know. <laughs> what disease favorite you want to go disease? after? Yeah, what would, you, what would you like to turn off the most? Tuberculosis. Oh, really? Why? Interesting. Why TB? Uh, It's just so heavily dependent on the integrity of interferon, Mm. and it's so prevalent worldwide. It's the world's leading um, infectious disease killer, about 1.8 million deaths per year. And it's not so prevalent in Australia, but it, it is in India and Southeast Asia. And given that, you know, Australians are so obsessed with traveling to these amazing countries. It's so important that we understand how to prevent um, people from getting infected with it. And and when we talk a lot about interferon, the work you're doing, I mean, how do you, how do you get interferon to examine? Like you, you know, what does it look like in the lab? Are you yanking it out of a blood supply or is this coming from a a mouse model? Mm -hmm. Like how do you get the interferon to examine it? That's also a really awesome question. Uh, We can make it actually. Can you make it? Yeah, so it, a very long time ago, um, its DNA sequence was essentially discovered. And from that, you can um, pretty much make the molecule by in, inserting it into bacteria. And then the bacteria will make bucket loads of interferon, which you can purify. Um, and it will, human cells and mouse cells will respond to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So does that mean, you know, if, if we can. Oh, I guess it's, it's one of those things where we can make it, but we don't necessarily understand it because we're so we're not really making it. We're getting the bacteria to make it for us, right? So that's yeah, it's it's interesting that that sort of complexity is so high that we need to use biology to make it for us. Mm-hmm. Shane, it sounds like you want to buy some. I've got some from Sigma in the lab. Yeah. If you'd can like you me to some? pass them on, well, just you know, figure you know a little bit a day. It's not going to hurt, right? Is that, <laughs> that's probably going to hurt a lot. It, wouldn't recommend don't it. Please don't quote. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. I think the um, 
this whole era of understanding the immune system better is, you know, it's, it's linking into everything we do in, in health at the moment. As you say, like things like rheumatoid arthritis are crippling, crippling. I mean, it's not TB, but it's crippling to many people after a certain age and it's pretty standard. And I mean, my understanding of that is it's just the immune system creating inflammation when it's not needed, right? I mean, that's all rheumatoid arthritis really is. It's just over, overproduction of yep. inflammation. Yeah. Narelle, uh, good luck. How long have you got left on your PhD? Oh, it's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> Why the cure TV? Why would you uh, ask that? Uh, I'll love it's so it. Rude. Well, some people get excited and they say a few months. <laughs> no, Other people say, I've just started. I'm just coming out of second year blues ah. now, so I'm very excited. Yeah, you're coming out of second year blues, so that's great. You're <laughs> yeah. into the home stretch. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Narelle, thanks so much for chatting to us today and uh, good luck. And um, hopefully you'll cure TB before the end of maybe, what, next year? Yeah, 2022. Yeah, give us a couple months, we'll get there. A couple of months. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Narelle Keating is a PhD student from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the studio with us now is Georgia Atkins-Smith. She's a postdoctoral researcher at La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe Uni. Welcome back, Georgia. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me here today. It's just been a few months, I think. It has. I was here just the other day for Pint of Science, and now we're back again. It was, uh, it was weird because I always have this real memory problem that people know that I don't remember when people have been on. And I, when uh, the La Trobe comms person, a very, very excellent comms person you have out there, contacted me about this great new work you've uh, published, I said, now, I'm sure George has been on recently. And she said, oh, yeah, she was on 2016. I'm thinking, geez, my memory's not as bad as I thought it was. Actually, it is. It was three months ago. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Back again. Back again. Now, you work in the area of cell death, which is, I suppose, why is there such an interest in cell death? What, what's so important about understanding how cell death works beyond yeah. us getting old? Well, cell death is just fascinating, first of all, because every day billions of cells within, within the human body are dying. Yeah. So for many years now, we've, we've been fascinated with this uh, type of, of cell death called apoptosis, which is a controlled and regulated type of cell death. Um, that's what I've mostly focused on. But in, as a whole, the field of cell death is just so exciting because now we know that it's not just apoptosis. There are nearly over 10 different types of ways that cells can die. So we're learning new things every day about this process of cell death. It's not just a random um, falling apart of the cell. It's a very coordinated and the way that it occurs depends on what is killing the cell and things like that. Hmm. And uh, presumably the time the time sequence for that differs amongst those 10 different ways. I mean, uh, in terms of how long it takes a cell to die? Yeah, exactly. So, And even within the same type of cell death, what is inducing it? What is the, what is the stimulus that's causing that cell death? That would also uh, change how long that takes that cell to die. And are we able to you know, initiate cell death artificially? I assume we are. Is yes, that something? So definitely. H- and how do we go about that? So lots of the treatments in the clinic. So if you look at um, immunotherapy, all of our cancer treatments, everything like that, our radiotherapy, chemotherapies will be targeting cell death, inducing cell death. Um, so lots of our treatments are actually targeting that process and killing the bad cells and keeping our healthy cells alive. Right. I, I just thought I'd say this just a comment because I thought you guys would love it. You can also just induce it with a laser. Oh, really? Yeah. How do you do – no, sorry, we've got to pause there. How do, Georgia, do you know about this laser cell death killing process? Well, if you want to study it, I mean, why is cell death called one? Because pus is just a load of dead immune cells. And you can <laughs> induce that by just lasering the skin. This is how we can study it. Can I do this I with a laser pointer it. if I go home and 
actually probably if you get one of those one of those really strong ones from China. Yep. Yeah, I got one. Why are you recommending such bad medical advice today, Dr. Shepard? Well, no, it's just you know it's just exploration. I mean, who was it who got the Nobel Prize for um, you know stomach ulcers? I mean, yeah, eating just, worms. Yeah, yeah, just scientists just do that. Stuff they eat yourself. worms. They use lasers. It's what people do. Yeah, yeah, we we could test it out, Shane. Come over to the laser lab next week. Yeah. and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sounds very hard. Bring the some, last episode. I'll bring some interferon. <laughs> <laughs> the last episode of I'm Standing Go Go featuring Dr. Yeah. <laughs> interferon party. I love it. Sorry, Georgia. Uh, yeah, we, we just got a bit off track there by this. Um, Might have a new method to induce my soul death when I get back to the lab. Yeah. <laughs> just, just bring them into the studio for a couple of hours. They'll die. Um, in, in terms of the, the new work that you've been doing, though, tell us a bit about that because, you, I mean, I've seen a lot in the news lately about cell death. It seems to be the, you know, there's a bit of a groundswell of activity. Yeah. So I guess our study comes from a previous study we did a few years ago where we found that at the final moments of a cell's death, especially our, our monocytes, the type of our white blood cells, they undergo a really dynamic and drastic cell death where they essentially shoot out these beaded necklace-like structures to the space around them. Mm-hmm. So we discovered that a few years ago and now in our previous, um, our current study, we've actually been able to identify the key protein and molecule that is driving that, that process and what's controlling those beaded necklaces. And we've discovered that this process of forming these structures and undergoing what we call this dance of death, it is absolutely vital for the efficiency to clear away and remove those cells from our body um, to so they don't go in, um, pro-inflammatory and can contribute mm. disease. So, so you mean the way the cell sort of breaks up yeah. has to break up in a certain way so that the rest of our body or our bodies clean up people, whatever yeah. they are, uh, can, can, can do their job. Yeah, exactly right. So we have our phagocytes, so they're like the garbage trucks of the body, and we've been able to show that when we have a dying cell, if it doesn't break apart in the right way, these garbage trucks cannot clear them up, they cannot remove them. And we know that, you, before you were just talking about arthritis, yeah. all of those inflammatory diseases, our autoimmune diseases, they're caused by this huge accumulation of dead cells. So we're now really starting to understand at a detailed level what are the key proteins that can ensure that our cells die correctly, yeah. And, removed. and the cleanup crew are called Fakocytes. Fakocytes. That's an unfortunate name. Yeah, they're actually really cool videos. I was promising not to get off track of like phagocytes, like eating, like other cells are super cool. But I actually had a scientific question. Um, so the gene that you've discovered, the, the protein that you're working on, which is yeah. important for cell death, and then you kind of link that back to inflammatory conditions. Are there any, we know that there's a genetic basis for inflammatory conditions. So are there patients that have inflammatory disorders which have a mutation in this gene? Yeah, interesting. Um, it's very hard to study because all of the mouse models, they are, are either embryonically lethal or have severe neuronal defects. So whether patients carry these mutations, we're currently not sure. Um, but if we can get a, a type of mouse model up and running, it'd be really cool to assess their role in different autoimmune diseases because that's exactly what we're going into the moment, um, trying to establish those autoimmune diseases to to investigate that mm. final moments of cell death. Georgia, I'm a bit more interested in the necklace, beaded necklace type structure as someone who doesn't understand any of this stuff. It sounds beautiful. It does sound beautiful. It is beautiful. In this study, I mean, you're obviously focusing on the protein that causes this yeah. dance and this reaction. Did you get more of a sense of what these structures do? Yeah, so largely we think they're there because 
it's an efficient way to break apart into smaller pieces. So going back to the removal part. So we kind of draw comparisons to like eating a steak. When we sit down for dinner, you don't just eat an entire steak at once. You use your knife and fork and mm. cut it up into smaller pieces and bite by bite you get rid of it. And that's exactly what our cells do. So they don't just sit there in a whole blob waiting to be removed. They break apart. And in the monocytes, it's just this beautiful formation of these beaded necklaces that are really efficient in forming those smaller pieces. Um, just in, in forming these, these necklaces, is there any chance any of those materials are also used for signaling to the local environment around it? I mean, if you're breaking up a lipid membrane into that type of beaded necklace structure, you could be forming things like exosomes or little vesicles and things that happen too. Does that yes. play into it as well? So the fragments are called apoptotic bodies. So they're the type of those vesicles formed during apoptosis. And their roles in intercellular communication is a huge uh, focus of our research group. You need to keep posted because we currently have a, a really interesting study coming out, um, hopefully before the end of the year, looking at this process in a viral infection setting. And our current data, I don't want to give a spoiler alert just yet before it's published, um, but showing that they certain pathogens may actually hide within those within those um, dying cell fragments and use it as a way to spread. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. so stay tuned. But in, in, in contrast to uh, pathogens, there's also things like your microRNAs, your DNAs, proteins that can be trafficked within these uh, vesicles to aid that process of intercellular communication. Yeah, I, I think, um, we, well, going back to, you said there were like 10 ways of cells dying, you know, and I think that's fascinating. It's the first time I've heard that. When they When they die... Uh, these beaded structures and so forth, is it the same in all 10 ways or are there some of the 10 ways where it's particularly harder for that clean-up process to, to work, in which case you'd kind of want to avoid those cell deaths. Yeah, so the formation of the beaded structures, they're <laughs> called beaded apoptopodia, oh. they're only found in uh, in apoptosis, so in that really well-characterized mm-hmm. programmed form of cell death. A lot of the other new types of cell deaths that are coming out are called necroptosis, necrosis, pyroptosis, ferroptosis. They are all what we call an inflammatory form of cell death. They're still regulated, but they tend to kind of lies and burst and release all these really nasty, pro-inflammatory molecules and because they go through that lysis event they're generally they're, the cell membrane isn't intact so they can't form those beautiful beaded structures right. mm. pyroptosis sounds a lot <clears throat> like they catch fire <laughs> yeah so all of those inflammatory ones are, are characterized by releasing all of those really hot damaging molecules mm. so that's why they get the name pyroptosis it, it, look Georgia it's fascinating stuff I think uh, learning about all these cell type of death you know it's something that uh, I yeah, hadn't heard that before there were so many different types it's great you guys are doing that out at Latrobe uh, keep up the good work and we hope to um, hear more about this and I think these sorts of things in terms of therapies are so important so thanks for chatting to thanks us thanks so much for having me Georgia Atkins-Smith is from the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science. We've had quite a few guests from there this year, which has been fabulous. Now, uh, just before we go, I wanted to mention what's happening next week on the show because uh, I may have lost my mind, uh, as some of my co-hosts are looking at me in a certain way, but next week we are going to be interviewing 20 PhD candidates in around 20 minutes. You guys are just shaking your heads. Silence from the other <laughs> side of the desk. <laughs> well, what we were, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, okay, <clears throat> what do we want to do here? We want to show that um, our PhD students can actually deliver their message in a really short space of time and give people a quick fire you know, run at a lot of different types of research that are going on around Melbourne. And so about a week ago, I put up a little request on Twitter and um, I thought, you know, about two weeks should be able to find 20 guests. About three hours later, I was sitting at 
a little over 20. <laughs> that was a bit of a problem. Are these PhD students doing any work <clears throat> or are they just on Twitter? What time did you put it out? It was just that they are very long. Okay, fine. Yeah, I mean, so they were doing work but also <laughs> procrastinating on Twitter. They were probably, they were all, uh, if it makes you feel better, they were all in their labs <laughs> and uh, they just got an little alert and, you know, off we went. But uh, anyway, we managed to grab uh, 20. In fact, we have 21. Uh, you know me, I'm always uh, cautious just in case someone, someone gets a virus um, or something. But uh, we thought we'll be cautious. We'll make sure we've got at least 20 and we will be uh, interviewing all of them next week. But but this is, you know, you say a minute, but you're going to give them at least a minute. They'll have a minute to talk. It's not like, you know, they lose all this time in the intro and stuff. No, no, and they'll get a minute. And, and your phrase, at least a minute. No, 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 no. They'll get one minute. I have Chris KP here. Uh, I think Dr. Linden's going to come along. Yeah, and, I wasn't and going help. to. Yeah, I've got things going on. On, but I, I want to see this Dr. train wreck or disaster soaring success. I think everyone's getting a picture of just how much respect my team has for me. Oh. Here. <laughs> are, are you going to use uh, like a, a little bell to signal the end or like a foghorn? <clears throat> well, Chris KP is really good with noises, as you know. Um, yeah. So we'll probably just get him to do some animal noise or something and uh, to stop people at the end of their 60 seconds. But they'll get a little bit of training beforehand at Triple R and uh, it'll be fun. So a little later today, I will be tweeting out uh, the list of 20 that we're going to be doing, which will be a bit of fun. And um, hopefully uh, this will be a good idea. Have you ever done this before, Dr. <laughs> no, but, you know, that's, that's pretty much... What could go wrong? What could go wrong? That's true every week. You know, we, we just make this stuff up. That's community radio. <laughs> people, people are used to a certain uh, fly by your pants. You know, kind of approach. I think I think we might find. I mean, mm. we had two two PhD students today, so you might find that yeah. after next week, you'll have we'll have only PhD students as guests because I'm sure they'll do a really good job. Indeed, I, I'm just thinking of the door and a line of twenty people going out and people <laughs> grabbing the mic back and forth and hitting it and stuff like that. But yeah, there could be a few doctor lawyers in there. I could train them in that grabbing behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> just it's grab so it when you want it. Just grab it whenever you want it and pull it towards you. No, it'll be fine. So, uh, folks, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be fast. It, it will be the second last show, and I hate to say this, of the decade. And uh, we will chat to you again next week. It will be a frantic show. Hopefully, it will all go well. If not, we will play a lot of music. But uh, let's hope <laughs> that doesn't happen. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll talk to you again next week. Triple R. Hi. This is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.